0: Do you recognize me? I look super different. I'm sorry, who are you? Hi. I just thought I'd surprise you, popping in, looking totally different with my new hair.
1: Oh my God, Tracy, it's you I didn't recognize. (laughs) I'm so glad that everybody listening to this podcast can Mm -hmm. see your hair and therefore gets the joke.
0: Yeah. Isn't it great (laughs) how we chose to do a visual medium?
1: (laughs) So, for anyone who's familiar with the appearance of Tracy, she usually has kind of a blue streak thing going on in the back of her hair, um, and it's, like, a dark, dark, dark brown, uh, and she's got bangs, but now her bangs are a bit shorter, and her mm-hmm. hair is not quite as dark brown, and there's, like, a red situation going on left, right, and center. We love Oh, it. yeah.
0: Yeah, I got red hair now. I, uh... Like you said, Tracy usually has a blue streak, as if any hair I have isn't just the hair of the moment.
1: Well, usually to the podcasters, I, podcast mm-hmm. listeners, I feel like in their lifetime. <laughs> 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 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've always had a blue streak, sort of. <laughs> yes, in their <laughs>
0: lifetime, I have always had a blue streak.
1: <laughs> I uh, I'm really impressed. You sent me pictures, and it's a uh, it's pretty fabulous. Do you do you feel fabulous after this long, long, long quarantine of like no hair, mostly hair doing?
0: Yes, yeah, that was a big driving force. Being half vaccinated and vaccinated as half vaccinated, <laughs> and just being sick of my it was just felt like a sheet, like it was all one length. It was super long, and I was just frustrated and bored. So I took a chance.
1: I'm so impressed. You're so ballsy.
0: All I said was I wanted to look different going out than I did going in.
1: Wow, you're so brave. I do not... Nope, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, your
0: appearance is pretty fundamental to your job, whereas um, I, mine is not.
1: You did come out looking different than you did going in. I, for one, did not even recognize you. <laughs> You're doing great, babe. Thank you. Honestly, this week I've just been so proud of all the women in my life. Everyone else, you can just go away. But the women are <laughs> doing great.
0: The, well, uh, the the girls, the gays, and the days are are doing amazing. Men, you're you know you're there, and we see you, and we recognize you. But today's for the girls, the gays, and the days.
1: I need to know the person that first started that phrase. Like, I wish we could chase it all the way back to the very first human on the internet who said that. I would kiss them square on the mouth. It's so good. It's so good. Tracy and I are always here for a rhyme. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who isn't?
0: (laughs) Who looks at rhymes and goes, "Mm, no, thanks. (laughs) I don't like the wordplay. I don't like it rhyming. Who does that? What kind of monster?
1: I don't know, but I often have a rhyming dictionary up on my computer. Because I, love that I want for to you. know if I am rhyming or I'm not rhyming and I need it to be a conscious choice. There's no in between.
0: <laughs> Nothing I do in life is a conscious choice. That's the difference between us.
1: Oh, I so badly want to disagree with you, but the hair situation that just <laughs> happened.
0: <laughs> I very consciously wanted it different. I gave her some suggestions and was like, is there any technique you've ever wanted to try on someone? Just go do it.
1: That made my heart rate rise. (laughs) (laughs) For anyone who doesn't recognize this voice because her hair has changed, that's Tracy Harrison. And
0: that, with the curly hair, is Rowan Hall.
1: And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating.
0: And if you want to support us, you can buy our merch, join us on Patreon, or leave a review. Or just close your eyes and send us good vibes by whispering our podcast name into a crystal that's bathed in sunlight. But no matter what, we love you.
1: Ooh, I like that for us. Yeah, right? I want that energy for us. Wow. Okay, so because we have arrived at this episode, and for me, this is the episode, we can finally reveal that Leah who is the artist behind our spring sponsor, Greenleaf Geek, sent us both the Medusa dice from her curated collection. I honestly have no idea how she figured out that we are such Medusa fangirls, but for her to take the time to figure that out and then send us both these beautiful, sharp-edged, grace world gold-numbered, stone style dice is just... It's it's just such a testament to what a thoughtful artist she is. She's
0: the best. She, Oh, my God. I think we just were so geeked out when we were talking with her about the Medusa dice. We didn't even realize it. Like, we just were so excited. And she, being brilliant and thoughtful, latched onto us and sent it to us. But, oh, my God. They're so pretty. They make my heart happy. Anything that feels like stone makes my heart happy because it's like a little witchy. I'm like a little bird collecting all the stones. But I love them so much. Lee is amazing and thoughtful and like we said represents the best of the gaming community and has the coolest, coolest dice on her website.
1: And we waited to talk about these dice in particular because one, when you have a theme, you gotta rock the theme. And also because it was such like a very special kindness for her to think about us that way. So if you were in the market For custom handmade dice for a character or if you want some amazing curated options for your dice hoard, definitely check out GreenleafGeek.com or on Twitter and Instagram at GreenleafGeek. And we will never, ever, never, ever be able to speak highly enough of Leah and her work. And when you support Leah, you're supporting us. So use the coupon code FABLE. That's F-A-B-L-E for Willing and Fable listeners. You get 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply.
0: It's time for us to jump into the episode, and as evidenced by Rowan freaking out, she will be covering Medusa today. So before we jump into that story, we just wanted to remind everyone that there is going to be discussions of sexual assault, and listener discretion is advised.
1: When I tell you that I was stressed getting ready for this (laughs) subject... Oh, the stress. I feel about Medusa the way some people feel about, I don't know, should I say Jesus Christ or should I say Meryl Streep?
0: (laughs) Ooh, I don't know because (laughs) I know which one of those you feel more strongly about.
1: Meryl Streep. (laughs) (laughs) So arguably Medusa is kind of the Face of Greek mythology for a lot of people. Even if you don't know her story or really anything about Greek mythology, oftentimes you'll know the face of a woman with snake hair. And the story of Medusa is in nearly every book you ever pick up on Greek mythology. It's in every corner of the internet. You can read a myriad of different tellings, and I highly recommend that. But for anyone who has no heckin' clue what I'm talking about, a very popular version of this story goes thusly so medusa was an exceedingly beautiful woman so beautiful that men and gods alike desired to marry her or have her as their own she was a virtuous acolyte of athena and she served the virginal goddess as a virgin of her temple but poseidon found this mortal girl to be stunning so he raped her in the place that she was meant to feel most safe athena's sacred temple Story goes that Athena was offended that the girl was so beautiful as to be desired by the ocean god in that way. Perhaps the mortal had once bragged that she was more stunning than the goddess herself. Likely, Athena was mad to have the sanctity of her temple and her order besmirched, and she blamed the vulnerable mortal girl rather than fight another god. So she cursed Medusa to become a horrible snake-haired gorgon who turned men to stone when they looked upon her. This story traveled far and wide, and the king of Seraphis, Polydictes, used it to his advantage. He wanted to marry Danae, daughter of Acrisius, king of Argos, whom he'd rescued from the sea along with her son, Perseus. King Polydictes knew Danae's grown son would not support the marriage to his mother, so the king threw a party in which everyone presented gifts, but the embarrassed Perseus had brought none. The young man asked the king to name his gift and swore that he would get anything asked for by the ruler. The king demanded the head of Medusa, whose gaze could turn any man to stone. Couldn't he just
0: ask for the blessing? Couldn't he just be like, can, can you be chill about me marrying your mom? Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: And instead he was like, can you go die, please?
1: Yeah, because he was hoping that Perseus would die because no he hero was. until this point had ever come back alive. And interestingly, Danae, uh, she was put into a bronze room by her father because her father received a prophecy that her son would eventually kill him.
0: As is the usual.
1: And Zeus was like, no one can keep me out. I want this woman. And so he turned into a rain of gold coins and impregnated Danae, who then gave birth to Perseus. In conclusion, All stories go back to Zeus being terrible. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But because Perseus was a demigod, son of Zeus, he did have help with his task. He got a helmet of invisibility from Hades, the god of the underworld. The messenger god Hermes gave him a pair of winged sandals. Hephaestus, god of the forge, provided a sword, and finally Athena, goddess of wisdom and war, gifted the boy the most important gift in his arsenal, a shining, reflective shield. There's some debate that maybe Zeus gave him the sword. He also got a bag to hold Medusa's head that was special, and there's some debate about where that came from. Mm. Everyone likes to argue about who was participating in the triumphant moment. So Athena and Hermes guided the hero to the Grai, the old grey women of myth who shared an eye. These women were stubborn, but after he stole their eye and refused to give it back, they told him where to find the land of the Gorgons. Perseus was able to cut off Medusa's head using a trick that no other hero had yet tried. By looking on her reflection in the shining shield of Athena, he could see her without meeting her gaze. When Medusa's screams of anguish awoke the Gorgon sisters, he fled to safety using Hades' gift of invisibility and Hermes' winged shoes. At the time of her death, Medusa was pregnant with Poseidon's children, so Chrysaor and Pegasus sprung from her bleeding neck when she fell as perseus flew home drops of blood from medusa's head fell upon libya turning to venomous snakes that disappeared into the plains her blood fell into the red sea and turned to coral beneath the water throughout his travels and when he arrived home perseus used the head of medusa to turn his enemies to stone time and time again this murdered monster provided his victory but those details are part of perseus's triumph after he killed medusa and we're not gonna really go there that much in the end he gave Medusa's head back to the goddess who had created it. Athena used the head to adorn her breastplate and shield. The monster's blood, which Athena gave as gifts to various men, had both life-giving and life-taking powers. The goddess even bestowed a snake from Medusa's hair to Hercules for his own heroic adventures. And in death, Medusa was parceled out by the man who killed her and the goddess who cursed her, so that they might succeed in their own stories.
0: For some reason, that last part feels particularly gruesome.
1: It does, doesn't it? This whole story is... big ick. The modern world really loves to argue about the true story of Medusa, and to that I say, there is none. Her tale has been adapted and manipulated far too many times for anyone to say that theirs is the definitive, so it's really unnecessary to fuss about. So if my version sounded unlike your version, which is very likely, that's okay. The story of Medusa appears to come from the early Iron Age, predating the Greek alphabet. It suggested that the Medusa myth was heavily influenced by the Minoan, Hindu, and various tales of serpent goddesses and figures. There are numerous articles that associate her with a Libyan snake goddess in particular, which adds a very interesting element to this tale.
0: And yeah, interesting because you mentioned earlier that it was said that her blood is what created the snakes in Libya. So it sounds like they took that goddess and repurposed it and said, no, actually ours made that and yours is really ours.
1: Yeah, that happens all the time. I would not be surprised. The Greek historian Herodotus mentions that Perseus brought Medusa's head back from Libya, so it would make sense. And if that is the case, Medusa may have been a woman of color in the adapted Greek myth, which would make not only the possible texture of her hair noteworthy before it was turned to snakes, but also her difference in skin color. It adds another layer to the story. And it's hard to know if or how much this played into various tellings of Medusa's story early on, because we actually have no way of knowing how fair skinned Athena was, since she was regularly contrasted with the very white goddess Aphrodite. Homer's Odyssey, which dates to approximately 800 to 750 BCE, previously mentions the Gorgon as an inhabitant of the Underworld who Persephone could, quote, sick on those who upset her.
0: Ooh, I kind of love that for Persephone.
1: I love it for Persephone, but because I'm fiercely protective of Medusa, I don't love it for the Gorgons. But, I mean, that makes no sense. It's fine. Like, the Gorgons can live in the Underworld and be, let's say, employees. Yeah, I like that. They're employees. (laughs) In his text, The Iliad, from 725 BCE, Homer places Medusa on the aegis, or shield, of Athena and describes her as, quote, the Gorgon, dread and awful. Hesiod is the author who gives much more backstory for the Gorgons in his Theogony, 700 BCE. And this is what a lot of people consider to be the beginning of Medusa, really... Really having something going on.
0: Okay, all right.
1: And I'm not going to read the quote because, frankly, there's too many darn Greek names to really make it make sense very easily. So, the general idea is that the three Gorgon sisters were born to Phorsis and Ceto, who are two primordial ocean deities. These Gorgons were named Setheno the Mighty, Ural the wide wandering and finally medusa the cunning one or quote the queen notably medusa was mortal in this telling of the story while her other sisters were not oh we we don't know why because writers like Hesiod rarely qualified those bold statements in their stories
0: right right i mean a lot of it also was it was kind of just in the ether of the world you would just because it was written down once doesn't mean it wasn't said 150,000 times.
1: Exactly. And in Hesiod's story, Medusa did get it on with Poseidon. But all we know of that act that took place was, quote, With her lay the dark-haired one, Poseidon, in a soft meadow amid spring flowers. Which, it doesn't exactly sound like sexual assault, that being the one sentence that exists in this telling. I hope it's not. Yeah, absolutely not. I'm, I'm going with a no. Again, I have a little bit more information about the history of this story, so we're going to say no for now. Hesiod also mentions her in his text Shield of Heracles, and Aeschylus mentions the Gorgons, plural, in Prometheus Bound. In the original descriptions of the Gorgons in the Greek, they were not especially feminized. They did hate mortal men, but in some ways they lacked a lot of the trappings of quote-unquote femininity. The descriptions are often hybrid human animals with tusks and scales and fierce teeth. They had bulging eyes and beards.
0: Ooh, that's kind of cool. I kind of like that.
1: It is cool, and in one of the very early paintings of Medusa and Perseus, he holds her snake-clad head, and she has the body of a horse. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the early versions of the Gorgons were very much more monstrous. In a 2017 essay on Medusa in Ancient Greek Art for the Met, Madeleine Glennon says, quote, Classical and Hellenistic images of Medusa are more human. But she retains a sense of the unknown through specific supernatural details such as wings and snakes. These later images may have lost the gaping mouth, sharp teeth, and beard, but they preserve the most striking quality of the Gorgon, the piercing and unflinching outward gaze. So, in the Archaic period, the Gorgons were monstrous. Right. And as we move forward, they became increasingly more beautiful women. And by they, I mostly do mean Medusa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As Alison Meyer points out for Hyperallergenic, the classical period of Greek art from 480 to 323 BCE further associated beauty with danger when Medusa, the sirens, the sphinxes, and Scylla all got a little hotter. Losing some scales and wings as their bodies were more and more humanized. And if you look back through Greek art, the women do get hotter. They go mm-hmm. from being creatures to being women with things that are a little creature esque.
0: <laughs> hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of how you know they have very strategically placed scales so they can still have no clothes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> They love to strategically play scale. <laughs> and a lot of that in our modern understanding is also influenced by Renaissance art. Oh, yeah. In actuality, Roman, Virgil, and especially Ovid were the two that really began to define Medusa's narrative as we know it today. By the time the myth gets to them, the Romans are in full fanfic mode hmm. Zeus is Jove Athena is Minerva Poseidon is Neptune but the pantheon is fundamentally the same so Virgil wrote in the Aeneid quote, in the middle is the Gorgon Medusa an enormous monster and whom snaky locks twist their hissing mouths her eyes stare malevolently and under the base of her chin the tail ends of serpents have tied knots But Ovid really changed the game. He described Medusa as a beautiful woman born human. Her silken hair and stunning appearance caused every man to lust after her. And finally, Poseidon rapes her inside the sacred sanctuary of Athena. So until this point, Mm -hmm. Medusa was a Gorgon. Born a Gorgon, looking like a Gorgon.
0: Right, right. And now she's born a beautiful woman.
1: Right. He writes, quote, Medusa once had charms to gain her love. A rival crowd of envious lovers strove. They who have seen her own, they ne'er did trace, mo- more moving features in a sweeter face. Yet above all, her length of hair they own in golden ringlets waved and graceful shone. Okay, so now
0: we know she had golden hair. That's the first indication of physical human characteristic.
1: Are we surprised that the Romans gave her golden hair? No. <laughs> no. No. And Ovid is also responsible for introducing the incident of rape into Medusa's story. Ovid writes, quote, A chief, one of their number, asked why she alone among her sisters wore that snake-twined hair, and Perseus answered, What you ask is worth the telling. Listen, and I'll tell the tale. Her beauty was far-famed, the jealous hope of many a suitor, and of all her charms, her hair was loveliest. So I was told by one who claimed to have seen her. She, it's said, was violated in Minerva's shrine by the lord of the sea. Jove's daughter turned away and covered with her shield her virgin eyes, and then, for fitting punishment, transformed the gorgon's lovely hair to loathsome snakes. Minerva still, to strike her foes with dread, upon her breastplate wears the snakes she made. I really like that, that way of telling it because it, it makes every ounce of the story ominous.
0: Oh yeah! Oh my God! Absolutely.
1: And it does acknowledge that Medusa was a gorgon before getting her snake hair, which is fascinating.
0: Does it say? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're right.
1: Yeah, that is so really this- interesting.
0: I don't have any extra thoughts on that. I need to, to digest that a little bit.
1: <laughs> so this was a fascinating choice on Ovid's part. At the time of his writing, the Emperor Augustus was enacting laws that the writer didn't agree with. Some of those laws forbid specific sex acts. And Augustus was also in the process of, quote, positioning himself as a god. So Ovid said to himself, I'm really mad at this dude. And he wants to be a god? Cool, now the gods are ordinary and awful and bad. Go be a god then.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Love that. Good job, Ovid. Love it.
1: This act was the political precursor to the media likening various women in politics to Medusa. In her 2016 Atlantic essay, The Original Nasty Woman, Elizabeth Johnson points out that Angela Merkel, Theresa May, and Hillary Clinton were all likened to Medusa when they were given severed snakeheads. And some people will recall Clinton's was held aloft by Trump as Perseus. Oh, I hate that. Medusa was also a political symbol in the French Revolution when Jacobian rebels displayed her face as an emblem of French liberty. Unrelated. This one's just for me. (laughs) Percy Bechet Shelley also wrote a pretty intense poem about how Medusa was wrapped up in a, quote, patriarchal framing. And y'all know how I love the Shelleys. I love that for them and for you. It's a good time. Um, But Ovid's version of this story didn't really catch on in the Greek world. In fact, writers at the time went back to a version that was much closer to Hesiod's for a very, very long period. It was as the ability to speak the Greek language faded and Latin gained prominence in Western Europe during the Middle Ages that educated elites went back to Ovid's tale.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Middle Ages, Middle Ages, and the um, early 1800s Regency were like, we want to just be ancient Rome now, please and thank you. Like they just drew so much inspiration from that time.
1: It's really funny that ancient Rome was like, we just want to be Greece now, please and thank you. Yeah, as far as <laughs> yes. the stories went, it's just this trickle down effect. Ovid's version, in which Medusa is victimized by Poseidon, Athena, and Perseus, is the one that has really lasted and caught on again in recent history. That's why I chose to start with that version, because I think it's one that many people are familiar with. Though, Mm -hmm. as Tracy can attest, TikTok loved yelling at us when we (laughs) didn't clarify that that wasn't the OG OG.
0: Right, right. That, yeah, just because it's, we didn't clarify that just because it's the most widespread doesn't mean it's the original, which is fair. I still firmly believe that there is no such thing as a true version of any story. It belongs to the person as much as it belongs to the teller. But anyway, Rowan, continue.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I really feel that people can tell stories in any way that makes them happy, assuming that you are not treading all over someone else's culture or being a generally awful person. Like, by any means, please adapt a tale as you see fit. Oh, yeah. It it happens all the time, and it has happened so much in the lifetime of Medusa lore than we probably even realize and that I could fit into this podcast. So whatever version of Medusa you're rocking with, keep rocking with it. This is the version that I live and die by So we're going to talk about it in detail because I have a lot of feelings. (laughs) Numerous modern interpretations of this myth of Medusa will describe Athena's decision to turn the young woman who was a victim of sexual assault into a monster as a way of providing her the means to protect herself.
0: Before you go on, because I know this is a version that you don't love i want to before you explain just say that it's one that i do like but i like because it still makes athena kind of shitty but with a different motivation so i think it's so interesting when you have characters thinking they're doing the right thing and the helpful thing and it's ultimately not so forcing medusa to become this creature and saying you know I, I have to punish you, so I'm going to give you this power. See, look what I did for you. And really, it's Medusa on the other side saying, I can't control this. I'm suffering. This is, people are hunting me. To me, that is really interesting to explore just from a humanity perspective. The idea that Athena thinks she's the good guy in the story and might not be is really interesting. So that's my two cents on it before you jump in and explain, I'm sure, in wonderful detail, why you don't <laughs> love this version of the story.
1: Uh- I'm really glad you're saying that because you and I like different versions of this story for actually very similar reasons. Right. I feel so strongly about this, but not in a way that I particularly care how anybody else tells the story. (laughs) Like, I'm more than happy to sit and talk with Tracy about the different interpretations of this all day and never get mad. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't do with medusa in particular (laughs) and you know that might come from the fact that we've known each other for a very long time but just you know the medusa story is up for grabs oh yeah absolutely you can do what you want with it
0: my personal favorite is in the game hades they have the character of maid dusa who is she goes by dusa (laughs) and she's the maid (laughs) Of the household, <laughs> she's actually a very lovely, adorable character. Um, so, top ten interpretations of Medusa—that one's number one.
1: Knowing that I support Tracy fully in her choices, I'm about to go off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, I am. I know I'm really interested to hear this because, like I said, you've done the research on this, and I haven't. And just from my perspective, of I think we're in agreement on. I don't think Athena is the good guy in this story, no matter how you tell it. I don't think there's really a ton of good guys in this story, but I'm curious how far you want to take it in the direction of uh, her being truly horrible.
1: Yeah, okay. The first and the simplest reason that I don't think Athena was sitting around trying to figure out how to make Medusa's life good in any way is that she used her godlike power to curse medusa against her will and you could argue that perhaps athena had to curse her but in the greek pantheon there's not really a precedent for gods having to do a lot of cursing uh so i'm 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 calling no on that one
0: i don't know i mean i i would need to do more research on it to see if if it was a show of strength the show of saving face of this thing happened in her temple the expectation is that she would react i mean if it happened in any other temple i think there would also be punishment so for the goddess of war and cunning to do nothing feels i'm not saying it's the right thing to do anything like that but I, i wouldn't write off she had the option to do nothing quite as easily
1: I mean she she did that whole big fight with Poseidon for the city of Athens. She's not Anyway, let me let me continue for a second. So, she cursed Medusa to specifically turn men to stone against her will. Medusa had no control over this curse, which meant Athena was taking away the poor girl's bodily autonomy. Using her godlike power. And you could say that Athena is an advocate for women in that she does have this temple of virgins. That's not such great advocating for women. And in modern times, we see tons of instances in which people try to protect women by victim blaming and policing them. For example, dress codes or curfews for women when there are rampant sexual crimes in an area. It happens all the time. And while I believe that the narrative around women sacrificing bodily autonomy for safety is one that stories should explore, I don't believe that Athena's curse fits into that feminist package as neatly as we would like. So we're quickly going to divert and talk about the patriarchy. I think that we can both agree that not all men is a rhetoric that is harmful, and it is toxic, and it is a way for men to sidestep their personal responsibility for a society that makes the girls, the gays, and the theys feel unsafe. And to that, I fired back with an example that someone taught me. It doesn't have to be all men. If there's one bullet loaded into the revolver, I'm still not going to play Russian roulette. Mm Mm-hmm. According to a 2010 study by the CDC, one in five women will be raped in their lifetime. One in 71 men will be raped. The U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics found, quote, in a 2014 study of college campus rape statistics by the BJS, they found 63% of reported rapes against females aged 18 to 24 are done by white males. About 80% of violent crimes are perpetrated by men. Please know that the majority of sexual crimes go unreported in the United States and the statistics get worse and worse for every minority group that a person falls into. Members of the LGBTQ community and the POC community are more likely to experience sexual crimes. According to Rain, Native Americans are twice as likely to experience rape and sexual assault in their lifetime. For some people, my fictitious revolver isn't loaded with just one bullet, which I contend with. It's two or three or four. And in the world of societal change, we do not play around with not all men or not all white people or any narratives that are like that. Not all men are rapists, but all men benefit from the patriarchy. And the patriarchy is built, in part, on the strength that comes from the fear that vulnerable groups live with. Unfortunately for us, the bad men don't walk around wearing jerseys to say what team they are playing for. And the good men need to step up and be a part of the solution. And if they don't want to bear the burden of doubt, that's a big ask, but it's part of the deal.
0: Those are the rules. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think the other thing that's really hard for people to contend with is saying there those bad men and good men makes it feel like, well, okay, well, I'm not one of the bad men. And Rowan, I don't know if you've seen it, the, the movie Promising Young Woman. No. It's so powerful. But basically in that they very intentionally cast really well-loved actors to be the perpetrators of crimes, especially sexual crimes. Because the director wanted you to feel like, I trust these people. I like these people. They're they're mm-hmm. good people. They wouldn't do this. And I think so much of what that story and, and many of these stories push forward is you can be a good person and think of yourself as a good person and still do these things and not see yourself as someone who needs to wear a jersey that says, hey, I'm a bad person and I'm sneaking around in society being this problematic person, it takes active work not to be, and you're going to mess up and you're going to be called out, and that's okay. Learn from it. Don't jump to the defensive. It is not an attack on who you are as a fundamental person. What does say a lot about who you are as a fun- fundamentally as a person is how you react to that. If your reaction is to get aggressive and defensive, that says a lot about who you are as a person, as opposed to when your reaction is to take in that information. And try to change.
1: I think there's a part of the Medusa story in Perseus that really interests me. And that is that Perseus wasn't the rapist in Medusa's story. But he bought the narrative that she was the villain and ultimately became an equally awful villain from her perspective. In most versions of the myth, we could argue that Perseus didn't know better, he was fed the narrative that she was a monster, he was told that the way to solve his problem was through violence, and yeah, it's a dramatic Greek myth filled with swords, but that is a pretty shiny allegory, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Likewise, I swear I didn't abandon my Athena argument. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Not all women are feminists, and not all feminists are perfect all the time, and it is possible for women to weaponize the patriarchy and sick it on other women.
0: I'm so glad you brought this up. I'm so glad you brought this up.
1: One of the tools that keeps a system like this working is the self-policing of groups that don't hold power.
0: Can we dig in this into this just a tiny bit for people to understand, like, what exactly this means because it feels like that's a very feels like it could be a very deliberate action of i'm policing you and i'm like i I think what's so important for people to understand and i'm sure many of our listeners do but i think what's so important to understand is so much of this is subconscious so much of this feels like well this is what i'm supposed to do this is how things are and i think an example for me is a small one You know, in college or when you're in the city and you see a bunch of young early 20 somethings in their short skirts and dresses in the middle of February running down the streets or a girl on a Sunday morning walking home in the dress from the day before and we make comments like, oh, look, you know, they're dressed slutty or, oh, it's the walk of shame or, oh, these ridiculous girls like running around, you know, making comments and talking those people down.
1: Right. That's self-policing. Right. as and, and it took
0: being pointed out about that for me. Now, whenever I see a, a, a woman in clothing that is not quite warm enough for the weather because she clearly, or, or a feminine presenting person, or any person, when I see a human being not dressed for the weather, clearly because it's a fashion statement, I love to make sure everyone around me knows that I think that they are more powerful than me. <laughs> yeah. I am amazed by them, and I love them, and I would fight for them. But it's it's little things like that, you know, making comments about other other women. And I, I think there's been a big cultural shift, especially in the younger generations, to empower each other in a way that wasn't there for so long because it felt like what you're supposed to do is judge certain people so that you yourself weren't judged.
1: Exactly. I'm glad you're explaining that further because self-policing is – Sometimes, though not always, and often, not something that people do consciously. It is it is what happens when survival or existing is put into jeopardy, and someone has to make the choice of siding with the oppressor. And that doesn't yes. always mean make the choice like, I am choosing to side with the person who's keeping me down. It's... I am operating in a system in which the best way for me to survive is to behave this way. And anyone else who makes my demographic look bad or threatens my ability to behave that way is the problem, not the oppressor. Yes. And it's so insidious because it is so subconscious and it is so difficult to break down in yourself. I know I'm I'm constantly reminded of the ways that I need to behave better in tiny, tiny little details of my life. It's pervasive. That's why it works.
0: Yes. And the big thing is to differentiate yourself and your self-worth from those actions. So being corrected on them is not a statement about who you are as a fundamental person. And if the person who is correcting you on it tries to imply that's the case when your response is that you want to work on it and improve – It's okay to recognize that that's also a difficult and toxic way to have that information presented to you. But if someone's genuinely trying to give you information to better your communication and your ability to interact in the world with others, it is not who you are as a person. And it's okay to learn. And it's okay to say something today that's different than what you said before because you have more information.
1: So this self-policing is where we get our goddess Athena. It is vitally important for storytellers to explore the myriad of ways that people can operate within a society the more we specify every character the shades of gray the large evils the small ones the more readers are able to recognize themselves within that behavior if we're lucky sometimes we hear a story and we actually learn how to improve in a human way and In this day and age, when responses are so often limited to 140, 240 characters, I think that people get very wrapped up in societal rules Mm -hmm. and fictional exploration having to be the same. And when we say not all men or try not to engage in self-policing, it doesn't mean we don't make characters who do those things. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I recognize that it seems excessive to so closely attach the real world to a fantastical story with a woman who has snakes for hair. (laughs) But making mundanity and especially dark mundanity that's real world and normal into otherworldly occurrences is one of the really great ways for people to explore the self. That's why myths exist, Which brings me to my big point. Athena is the pick-me-girl of the Greek pantheon. And I really want to get into this because there are so many layers to it. (laughs) Please, go. For anyone who's unfamiliar, Sarah Gundanau, writing for Study Breaks, defines the term. Pick-me-girl tries to distinguish herself from other women by subverting traditionally constructed femininity to impress and attract men. As the name suggests, this woman is begging to be picked. Her desperation for male attention and approval pushes her to the point of denying her own femininity. In this case, she'll even talk about her willingness to give up her rights as a woman. She will often throw other women under the bus in the process. Quite similar to bullying, she will put others down as a result of her own insecurity in an effort to raise herself up and the problem with the pick me girl (laughs) is that it is born of internalized misogyny the quote hatred dislike or mistrust of women manifested in various forms such as physical intimidation and abuse sexual harassment and rape social shunning ostracism etc that's according to dictionary.com And it makes sense because femininity is not the societal norm. So to thrive, one shuns it. But even using the phrase pick-me-girl often involves a form of misogyny. It has a lot of overlap with the idea of the quote-unquote cool girl. Mm Mm-hmm. Because both of these ideas are associated with women doing things like wearing no makeup or drinking whiskey or whatever else is perceived as masculine. But some women just genuinely like those things. And then calling those women pick-me girls can become a way of excluding them from the in-group that is then femininity.
0: Oh, absolutely. Of course, like everything, it's nuanced, it's delicate, it's difficult to balance... I think the problem with pick me girls comes from when you meet people who say, Well, I just I can't be friends with women. I can only be friends mm. with men. Women are just too red flag pragmatic. You know. <clears throat> it, that's what gets me. Or or being exclusive, you know, if a new girl joins a group. It's like, well, so I'm like, you know, the guys love to hang out with me and, and like I play sports just like them and I drink, you know, whiskey with them. So like I like it being exclusionary I think is very different and the attitude you bring to it is very different than being someone who's like yeah i don't like makeup not my thing i love whiskey um women are dope as hell and i love them like that's a different attitude but but we always everything's reductionary we want to we want to reduce everyone to a box and a label
1: right the pick me girl is the rebranding of the i'm not like other girls trope and it is complicated So there's a phrase that I like even better in the case of Athena. Daphne Olive of the wonderful Fathoms Deep podcast first got me considering Athena this way when she described her as, quote, an exceptional woman. Ooh. Daphne is the person who really got me diving deeper into Athena's role within her pantheon. The exceptional woman. Is a woman who excels. She is, in fact, exceptional at what she does. And this skill hides the true narrative of the title that she perpetuates the view among the men who surround her that she is the exception to the norm that is other women.
0: Oh my god, that's such a good way to put it.
1: She is therefore allowed into the boys' club, often holding positions of power. The problem is, to maintain this power, she must keep putting women down, or she's no longer special. hmm In the myth of Medusa, Athena cursed a young woman who worshipped her in her own temple for becoming the victim of a rape by a god. What's worse, the quote-unquote reason that Poseidon raped Medusa is that she was, quote-unquote, more beautiful than Athena, as a lot of stories go. There, There is this pinning against each other that is put into a lot of stories. That Medusa claimed that she far surpassed this goddess, and so Athena retaliated. And then the goddess put the mortal in her place, and anyone who dared to seek the young girl out, through Medusa's curse, Athena was also able to put men in their place, too. I had
0: literally never thought of it that way before. That's... that is really interesting.
1: Athena did it with Arachne. She loves to punish women who think that they're better than her. And a lot of times, I feel as if that narrative is put on them. These women... It doesn't have to be a competition, and the reason that the competition is such an affront to Athena in particular is because she is the exceptional woman in the Pantheon. She's a goddess who holds power, and she's a virgin because she doesn't stain herself with men. She deals with war. She has wisdom. If she supported other women, I think that a lot of that power would go by the wayside. In that yeah,
0: in that context and in the, the culture and the situation she was in, yeah, I'd have to agree.
1: And here's the thing. I know that a lot of people advocate for Athena having done this because she cared about Medusa, because it feels better. And because a lot of times our morality as people is wrapped up into the fictional characters that we want to explore and learn from but that's that just isn't true it is really okay for athena to be a victim blaming woman punishing bad feminist pick me girl because she's fictional we don't go around accepting this behavior from real women but i would absolutely encourage storytellers to further explore the idea of a woman who is both a victim and a perpetrator within the patriarchal system that benefits and destroys her because these people really exist. Right. And it's why
0: I brought up my interest in the version of the story of her thinking she's doing the right thing and really being as horrible as thinking you're doing a terrible thing and being horrible. There's something I just find really interesting about letting these fictional characters take a step further than people can.
1: Right. I again, I think both versions of that Athena are really interesting because both versions of that woman exists in your grocery line. Yes. Or your neighborhood or wherever. This version of it I just find so compelling because it really butts up against our want for all women to be on the right side of things all the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So for my story today, I wrote it from Athena's perspective.
0: Okay. Oh, this is going to be interesting.
1: (laughs) And I don't agree with it. But again, my morality is not defined by the characters that I find interesting. And I find her really interesting. Oh, absolutely. Okay, let's dig into it. I, Athena, Minerva, goddess of wisdom, war, and the craft, protectress of Athens, patron of the great heroes Hercules, Achilles, and Odysseus, the bright-eyed, lovely-haired, virginal goddess of spoil, and favourite daughter of Zeus, was present at the murder of Medusa. No tale will tell you for the hero perseus whom i outfitted for success commands the lasting narrative as all men do lo may he lay lest he acknowledge the monsters i made for him the weapons i provided and the status i bestowed through the destruction of that woman her ruin was mine and that boy was but the arm of my spear for the story books so i watched as I could not resist the opportunity to hear my monster cry out in anguish. She would know that I was the vice of her life crushing down. That beautiful little fool. I remember how she looked upon my temple with glowing eyes when she first came to worship. She arrived like sunrise over a bleak ocean, and at once I felt compelled to have her. I felt proud. This virgin of my order, toiling away the short years of her life while men, gods, panted for her body like dogs. They could not have this girl, whose soul I possessed so rapturously. She had no idea what her denial did to those base men. Let them war and die and never know the taste of such a beauty as that which belonged to me. My uncle... Poseidon stole my plaything, and through Medusa's defilement sullied all women. That foolish, mortal girl. It was her only responsibility to remain pure in the eyes of men. I provided every comfort of their adoration in exchange. Let them whine their puppy cries she knew better than to woo than to walk alone than to dress and bat and preen her way into the god of the ocean's arms i hated her for what she did my acolyte sullied for her affront to me and to all mortal women who were her betters beautiful girl i took it all away Her eyes once looked upon me with love and adoration. Let every man who dared to touch that gaze turn to stone. May her world populate with monuments to her blundering, lonely, wasteful life. I would that she knew fear as no mortal yet alive had felt in their sorrows. I stole that renowned beauty from Medusa. Ugliness is the best way to drive men to fear, and I would use it as a tool for her destruction. That famous silken hair I turned to snakes. Let them writhe around that plotting head so that she lived wreathed in a writhing crime. Sensual, I think, and a particularly delicious testament to my cleverness. So I knew how a man might slay the monstrous girl. But I could not grant the power easily. The longer she lived, the more monstrous she became in every story told. So the more my power grew. It was a twofold gift, that curse. For every man she turned to a statue, the lonelier and weaker her heart grew. For every hero she slayed, the more the power of Athena appeared. So the mortals began to truly fear my curse. The men who once dared to bark for sex at the gates of my temples defiled the bevy of brides to my order. They learned to fear me as they ought to have all along. When I finally granted the power of the Gorgon's distraction to Perseus, I couldn't help but go see it. It had been so long since my Medusa looked upon her goddess, I wondered how she might shrink in my radiance after all this time. The very thought made me quiver with excitement. Perseus was slow. Even with the gifts I'd convinced the other gods to bestow, he was still a mortal boy, and a foolish one at that. My father Zeus bedded his mother by raining down in a shower of gold, and I thought perhaps he had as much intelligence as a coin tucked between the thighs of a brothel girl. When he finally made it to the home of my beast, I feared he might turn back, his shaking was so great. I whispered in his ear a seduction no hero could ignore, I wove him a tale of victory— though I wasn't sure he'd live long enough to see it. If Medusa turned him to stone, I might steal this one away and keep him for a coat rack. But I chose my hero well. He walked through the ruin cleverly, if a bit cocky. He bore the flight of Hermes and the invisibility of Hades, and yet he strode all out into her lair. The sights of the statue men, locked in their positions of fear, almost drove him mad, I think. He imagined all the ugliness of my gorgon as I fed stories of horror into his ear. I had to stop from giggling when I felt his anger rise. What a crime for a woman to be ugly, and tenfold more for her to be alone and compounded even then by her sullied nature and more again by her destruction of other men. I truly knew my skill was great when he finally came upon her. Perseus did not see Medusa as she was. His judgment was long since passed before she appeared. He saw her as a disgusting monster, so that even her perfect mortal features became grotesque. I loved the manipulation that occurs in the minds of men. In truth, my darling acolyte looked as she did the day I left her. Beautiful, supple, strong. Her skin was so impossibly human it looked like silk. Her hands so long, her legs so live, her lips as true as ever they were. It was only her hair those slithering snakes that tasted the air in soft kisses. And her eyes, so piercing once, burned like coals in the dark even before I looked at them. The anger of Perseus carried him through. It was easy once he could see and hate her properly. He never looked at my Gorgon, but through the reflection in the mirrored shield I gave him. That hero... He only saw what I wanted him to see. They only ever did. But I looked at Medusa before he struck her down. I poured deeply into her burning eyes to find the ugliness I'd planted within her heart. I wanted to feed on her self-hatred like ambrosia before it spilled out of her in death. It was not there. Medusa did not believe the story I told the world of her hideousness. She didn't even look scared to be standing in the dark with only the stone forms of men who hungered for her destruction. I could not understand the way she stood like sunrise even now when I'd convinced the men under the cosmos that they only wanted moonlight. She saw me standing behind Perseus. I know she did. Medusa always had the true sight, and no presence of snakes could take that away. It wounded me to meet Medusa's gaze. This girl once looked upon me with the worship saved only for gods. I was once her protection and her love, and now her eyes told me she saw only a woman brought to her knees by fear of her lessers. Medusa worshipped only herself now. I never gave that Gorgon the power to turn women to stone. It would have been unnecessary and foolish. I wanted the opportunity to call upon her for the rest of my days so that I might gaze into her eyes and see self-pity. She gave me only admonishment. When the hero severed her head, Medusa didn't even flinch. She did not wail or cry and she did not look away from me. I cannot recall if she smiled at me, though I imagine it now. Perseus would embellish the horror of the tale. I don't blame him. It is more dramatic for a monster to scream in anguish at the strike of a hero. And Perseus could not hear, mortal that he was, the scream of the goddess that stood behind him. That is a story I would not tell but this once. I cried out with my father's thunder when Medusa was murdered by the man who acted as my hand. For all my wisdom, I could not understand then what would become of me without her. I don't understand even now. For all the millennia I lived, I cannot recall what gave me status before I had a monster of my own to look down on. What gave me power before I took that woman's away? I do not understand what force in this world will allow me to walk with protection when I no longer have a sacrificial maiden to throw at the feet of the gods and the men. Must I do this all again, do you think? It was a clever trick she played on me, my Medusa. She had no power to turn a woman to stone, I did not grant it, but her gaze was sharp and my fear was complete. I would not live like Prometheus on the rock of her accusation, feeding at my resolve for all of time. So I turned my own heart to stone, my own curse come to cast a monstrous monument to fear. If Perseus had turned around, Medusa's innocent head in hand, he would have found the last cenotaph to the Gorgon's power, for there I stood, favorite daughter of Zeus, virginal goddess of spoil. That
0: was so good, and you'll know this for the compliment it deeply and truly is, it. Both the writing and the voice telling was very reminiscent of Cersei in
1: all the best possible ways. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's my one true dream.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The way you capture the thought process. I mean, I say it it like every episode. The way that you just get inside the heads of different people and show me and, you know, our audience – the world from their perspective is just breathtaking to me every time.
1: Thank you. I was definitely very inspired by Circe, by Madeline Miller. It's one of my favorite books. Everyone knows that. (laughs) That book also, it centers women in the Greek pantheon. So, you know, how could it not be an inspiration? And
0: it doesn't make them all good or all bad. That's also what I really like about that book. Like, it doesn't absolve the Circe you hear about in the Odysseus story as being, oh, well, here's the real reason she did it and everything was lovely and simple and perfect. It's, she was hurt and angry and misguided and violent and cruel for a long time. And that's okay for a character to be.
1: I love a misguided God, especially because they have a millennia. So they, it takes them longer to work get out i think right maybe. right
0: i clearly I clearly agree i think it's always more interesting to give people misguided intentions or to make it so clear to the reader listener consumer of the story what the goals for your antagonist or villain or even just character were even if those are terrible goals to have
1: right I didn't realize it until I was reading it this time through, but there is a sort of, like, sexual drive in my version of Athena to her ownership and then destruction of Medusa. And I I wouldn't argue that that is a definitive Athena telling, because arguably she could be, like, the ultimate asexual, aromantic icon of the Greek pantheon. There's a lot of ways to go about it, but... This Athena, I think, that I wrote just has this very... And I interpreted it a
0: little bit of the way... And again, you know, warnings for the things we're talking about. I interpret it as the way sexual assault can so often just be about power and ownership and humiliation. That's how it felt that she was approaching the situation too. I own you. When you make mistakes... I own you and I can destroy you.
1: Yeah. And I think because the ownership is framed in a very sexual way in the Roman canon of Medusa, Mm -hmm. that is very easy to kind of pull like a thread through the story. And it's one of the the great things about fiction is that (laughs) – (laughs) You can think about the fact that sexuality doesn't inherently have to be sex acts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the power that comes with it can come in so many different ways. I just... I I like this Athena who feels affronted by Medusa's behavior and by the things that happen to her.
0: What I really like about the way you told it is that, at least me listening, it ruffled my feathers to hear oh my gosh. she shouldn't have done this, she shouldn't have done this, she she shouldn't have walked that way, she shouldn't have it's her fault. And you did such a good job of again, it's an example of I see where she's coming from, I see her perspective, I understand it, and I still hate it. And it still makes me angry and I wanna fight it. And I wanna argue it. And that to me is a great mark of beautiful storytelling.
1: The funny thing is, if I met this woman in real life, I'd just start screaming and never stop. There would be no, there would be no, I see why you're thinking this way. It would just be. Oh, no,
0: no, 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 no. Only when she's written on a page in a very finite amount of script. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) And I guess that's my case. I guess that is my case for Athena being an aggressor in this story. Because we know, listen, we know Poseidon was awful we check we got it he's right right he's no one's over defending there. poseidon and perseus is to me the ultimate example of like a good guy i'm a hero oh yeah i'm a good guy he's just such a sock puppet <laughs> yeah <laughs> like he buys the narrative and he goes and slays the monster and the monster's this woman And he never gives it a second thought. And then he uses her body forever and ever and ever to get everything else he wants. Amen. Like, I didn't... So, in case anyone's not familiar, after he slays Medusa, he takes her head. And, you know, Atlas won't give him shelter. So, he turns the head of Medusa on him. And that's how a mountain's created. And there... I don't want to... This could be a story all on its own. But basically... He flies to a kingdom, there's a king who tied his daughter to a rock as a sacrifice to Mm -hmm, an evil mm -hmm. ocean monster, and he goes, I want that woman, I can fix that Isn't that that Andromeda? It is Andromeda, okay, cool, (laughs) cool. So, he, (laughs) he goes to save Andromeda, and he's like, I want that woman, and if I save her, she's gonna marry me, and... I'm going to save her using the severed head of this other woman who never had bodily autonomy to take a wife who didn't get to make a decision about it. Like, that is yeah. just so. Yeah,
0: but he's the good guy. Um, I'm a
1: good guy. It's
0: a good guy. I have and two thoughts on that. One, I think the idea of having a, a powerful woman say the same thing that powerful cis white men say hits really different in a way that I think is eye opening. And two, Perseus is such a good example of someone who you explain problems to and he's like, well, I didn't realize i was the villain in your story. Ugh. You know, that kind of reaction of he's the good guy. He he can't be doing wrong because he's the good guy. He's a good guy. You know what he's he wouldn't do that sort of thing.
1: He's a hero. Yeah. He's a hero. Same he in the day.
0: He saved the day. He's a hero. The gods worship him. He wouldn't do that kind of thing. You know, if your version of the story is that he's a villain, he's sorry that it's how you feel.
1: Interestingly, he takes this whole task because he wants to stop his mother from marrying this king but we actually never hear how Danae feels about King Polydictes ever. It's just Polydictes wants to marry her and her son doesn't want her to. And Polydictes saved them from the ocean and, you know, took care of them and -hmm. and gave Perseus his entire upbringing. And yet Perseus hates him and we don't exactly know why. And he comes back with this Medusa head and, Polydictes is like, no, 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 I'm marrying your mom now. And so Perseus just turns him to stone. Like, we just, there's not enough information there that's happening for me. Like, maybe Dana-E was happy <laughs> right not to be locked in a room and have this king who potentially maybe loved her. I don't know.
0: She probably didn't want her son going on a crazy, scary, definitely won't survive mission.
1: I mean, we can put Dana-E on our list of women that just got Screwed over.
0: <laughs> All the mortal women in this story have not had the best of times.
1: No, absolutely not. Those are the rules. Yeah, and even I mean, Perseus when he's trying to get information from the three Grai who have one eye, he takes their eye. Like, oh my god, the bodily I know. autonomy metaphors are just
0: just the taking <laughs> of things that women hold dear and precious. I think. I think what's really interesting to me is when you and I have had conversations just with friends, chatting in groups, big and small, and we talk about how, you know, shout fire if you're in danger instead of help because people don't want to get in the middle of something, but they'll run to help put out a fire. All the different ways that it means to be a woman alone, the ways that you're inherently always holding on to something valuable that someone could take from you i think this story has a lot of that the idea of him taking the eye from those women him, you know poseidon taking away from medusa what there are a ton of articles and things you read and tiktoks and videos and of, of men somewhat getting a glimpse into that perspective saying you know there's a time when i was carrying around all this money on me that i had to transport and I was so scared and that's what it feels like to be a woman. And yes, I'm, I'm in some ways, I'm, I think it's good that people understand the vulnerability and the, the inherent fear, but the big difference and the big missing piece of that puzzle is you can get to your destination and put the money down and you're safe again. And there is, no, there is never that. I am in every situation I am in looking at the people around me and assessing danger to the point where I, I don't even realize it.
1: Right. You don't even know you're doing it. And we have, the two of us have one version of what danger looks like and people who, women of color, have more. And it's just constantly compounded. And I so detest the way I and other women I know often have to plumb their personal experience to get men to listen to their points, like, you know, you don't have to auction off your trauma right. to be worthy of empathy. <laughs> you right. just don't.
0: It's it, it's true. It's so true you don't. And you shouldn't – I guess you shouldn't have to. But at a certain point, you have to be realistic about the world you're in. And for people to – if people are resistant to understanding what you're saying to them, you have to make it personal. And so you have right. to say – this isn't something that's an abstract. Here's an example. Here's what happened to me, someone that you know and love and think of as safe. I'm not, and here's why. It's not good, it's not ideal, it's not how it should be, but I have been in situations where that's the only way to get my point across, for for me to say to someone, you're fighting against this big abstract thing, I'm a reality in front of you, here
1: is the truth. Yeah, just, yeah.
0: (laughs) This was our vulnerability hour, everyone. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk.
1: (laughs) It's, you and I rail against Zeus so often because Zeus is just such an asshole. He's such an asshole. Such a dick. (laughs) And I, I also rail against Athena, but for very different reasons. I don't get to say she's just so awful full stop. I am interested in her. I feel Mm -hmm. as if she's the ultimate lesson on women in power in Greek mythology for me at this moment. She's just the thing that I'm so drawn to. It's why I loved the story of Arachne. It's why I love this one. Medusa, man. Okay. Do you want to talk about Medusa in art?
0: I would love to talk about Medusa in art.
1: Some scholars believe that Gorgon may have meant chamber of gold originally, and this meant that Perseus's adventure was just a pirating journey more than a murdering spree. (laughs) Which is super fascinating, but now a bit irrelevant in terms of the discussion of the myth as it is today. It is interesting to remember this, though, when we think about the term Gorgonian, which is the head and face of Medusa as an artistic decorative motif it appeared on architecture coins homeware jewelry soldiers helmets and weapons athena's everything Mm -hmm. it it was a popular temple decoration through the greek world and as a motif on the aegis of athena appearing as decor on the chest of her armor and it became a symbol of her power And that's another reason why I think Athena wasn't being super great about the Medusa thing, because Medusa's severed head became a symbol of how powerful Athena was. Yeah, it's not a
0: great look, if we're being honest.
1: It's not a great look, Athena. And, you know, now it's claimed by women throughout history, which is wonderful. I mentioned it before, but Archaic Medusa was less human. She evolved through the classical and Hellenistic periods to become more female. And the way that she appeared also adapted with time. She became idealized forms of women for the artists who were portraying her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense.
1: So let's talk about Cellini's sculpture, Perseus with the head of Medusa. Tracy, do yes. you see this sculpture that I have given you? this photo of a sculpture yes i do can you describe it
0: all right so the picture i'm looking at is from the side looking up at the statue and it is a nude figure of a man wearing a helmet with wings it is a stone statue very gray he is holding a sword in one hand and the head of a woman with all the neck guts dangling and sword or and snakes around the head He's holding it up very high, very triumphantly. It is a stance of power. He's got one leg up, sort of halfway on a rock. It is...
1: Her body is at his feet.
0: Oh, my God, I did not realize that. Her body is at his feet. And he is standing over her, holding up her head in triumphant power. His sword kind of at the ready to strike again.
1: He's also naked, as Greek men often are sculpted to be. He's got, I think, 12 individual abs. Minimum. Um, and this, this is kind of one of the definitive sculptures of the slaying of Medusa f- that people will recognize. And, quote, there is a rumor that Benvenuto Cellini despised the feminization of Italian politics. And his Perseus... With the head of Medusa, was his vicious response to the threat of women taking power. Turns out, as is the case in the statue, there were also other Renaissance politics in the mix. Cellini was asked to sculpt Perseus, son of Zeus, slayer of Medusa, to reflect the power of the Medici family over the people of Florentine. And I love this sculpture for that exact reason: the Medici's said, hey, give us a hot Perseus and show us how powerful he was killing a woman. It's going to show everyone how awesome we are. And Selene was like, cool, yeah, women suck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is a very, I'm a man, I am powerful, here's my triumph sort of image.
1: And that information is coming from Daily Art Magazine, by the way. So now, Tracy... The sculpture below it is of Medusa holding a sword and carrying the severed head of Perseus.
0: This one is so interesting. So it is also a nude figure, but the nude figure is now Medusa. She's much less kind of monstrous and wild looking than the version it seems to be from before, but she's... Holding the head of Perseus down at her side, not up in triumph like the other statue. And her sword is also down at her side. So where Perseus is holding Medusa's head in triumph with his sword ready to strike, Medusa is both at her side. But she's got a very powerful stance leaning back on her right hip, looking very angry. Where Perseus looks triumphant, she just looks angry.
1: This is Luciana Garbati's Medusa statue. And to quote Daily Art Magazine again, Until April 2021, a seven-foot bronze nude will stand outside the criminal courthouse in Manhattan, New York, USA. The work was actually created in 2008, a decade before the hashtag MeToo campaign, But in 2020, Argentinian artist Luciano Garbati petitioned the New York Arts in the Park program to mount his statue, Medusa, with the head of Perseus, as a symbol of triumph for victims of sexual assault. The millionaire sexual predator Harvey Weinstein was convicted in the court right across from where Medusa currently stands, armed with a mighty sword, her gaze sober and intense. This sculpture had a lot of flack when it was put up. Why? Um, I imagine part of it is that people love to hate things. But also, uh, a fair number of sexual assault victims tweeted about how they didn't like this because they're not looking for violence. And that this didn't make them feel better. And Perseus was not Medusa's sexual assaulter. So it's it's irrelevant. Also, this version of Medusa is... Depicted very much as kind of like the thin white American ideal. I
0: will agree with that. She is definitely very thin, very white-looking. When you have the opportunity to portray multiple bodies, I think that's where you get to portray a variety. I think this could have been. I think it would have been good to make her a normal body. I don't. Yeah. Okay. The more I look at it, the more I I see that part of it. Just of like, she fit. She a she a fit lady.
1: A lot of people would have liked for her to have been the idealized body that's commonly associated with the Greeks, which is a more full-figured woman. I don't inherently have a problem with a Finnish woman in that in her story, she is alone and isolated for a very long time. And to me, it can fit that story very easily. But again, that isn't the kind of thing that would offend me. So it... It, right. You know, it's not my my hill to die on or not die on. Um, there's also a lot of frustration that she doesn't have genitals. She's just a Barbie.
0: Oh, the picture's small enough that I can't see those details.
1: Yeah, she's got a Barbie crotch instead of, you know, a vagina. Like, Perseus has a penis in his. Right. That's a weird choice if your thing is about
0: victims of sexual assault gaining... Autonomy over their own body and triumphing.
1: It's interesting. I don't have a problem with this sculpture because I don't feel compelled to have problems with art that I don't hate, and I certainly don't hate it. It actually interests me. I'm interested in a version of the story in which Medusa could have slayed Perseus because, in fact, Perseus was there to assault her, she was protecting herself. Right. Um, and I think the big thing about
0: this picture is she's not – she is not depicted as happy about this triumph. It is not depicted right. as this big, triumphant moment. It is a moment of quiet, of quiet anger, of – like, it, it, it's not a glorious moment being shown here.
1: Yeah, I I don't think all art can make all people happy, and – I would love to see 10 artists' depiction of this and get to look at all the different versions. I think the problem was that it was associated with the hashtag MeToo movement. And, you know, everyone has a lot of feelings, rightly, about the hashtag MeToo movement. And this isn't – and no art could possibly be symbolic of everyone's experience. So I think no matter what it was, it would have gotten a lot of flack – would I die on a hill for this sculpture? No. Would I love to see this sculpture in person? Yes. So I, I
0: – and someone can make the argument, and I actually would be interested if someone did have an argument against me on this, but I don't see this statue as hurting people just by its existence of – I mean, potentially by the existence of the associations they've created of. It's the Me Too movement. It's about sexual assault. It's about this. But as a statue on its own, I don't think it is particularly offensive in any way, shape, or form. I think it's quite beautiful – I think the problem comes from people, twofold, from people putting a lot of associations onto it. And I don't know enough about the artist to know the connection to the idea of this being a statue for victims of sexual assault.
1: Right, right. And this is, I think, potentially unrelated to their choice, but I don't know. In the way that the Perseus sculpture was made to show the power of the Medici family and kind of intimidate people. I really do get a kick out of a Medusa holding the severed head of a man, showing the power of women to Harvey Weinstein. I do, I do. Like that. I do. I, I get a kick out of that. And uh, that's my own personal little joy. <laughs> Doesn't have to be for everyone. The okay so I have a question for you, Trace. Mm-hmm. My first memory of the Medusa myth from my childhood, which, of course, didn't exactly involve Poseidon assaulting yeah. Medusa. In my first memory, Perseus turned the mirrored shield on Medusa, and she saw her own face and turned to stone. And when he took her head, it was a stone version of her That's head. That's what that I remember, still too. Use. I did not see that nearly anywhere on the Internet. Wow. And that is my mem. It it wasn't nowhere, let me just say, but it it wasn't very popular in the tellings. And I vividly remember the element of her seeing herself and the curse that she bore turning on her being such a huge part of that story.
0: Yeah, I remember that. Also, when we were children, it was just that she had always existed as this snake-headed creature.
1: Yeah. Boo, snake women, pretty much.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it's just easier to take out the blood and gore if you say she turned into a statue, fell down, cracked into pieces, he took her head.
1: Maybe maybe that's part of sanitizing it for children. I also, though, read a lot of myth books that weren't especially sanitized for children in terms of blood and gore violence. Right. So, I don't know. It just, that is an element of it that interests Did me and why i included in my story that athena saw that medusa did not believe that she herself was ugly because Mm -hmm. in this story symbolizes to me so much of how ugliness can break people down and that is the exterior ugliness where you convince the world that someone is ugly and therefore unworthy of love and the internal ugliness where society or you convince yourself that you are ugly and therefore unworthy of love or sympathy or any number of things and the medusa story has always been that battle of society's physical ugliness and internal like moral mm-hmm. ugliness oh
0: absolutely uh yeah absolutely i think that's That plays a huge role in it. And I like that you turned it around and said she doesn't see that in herself.
1: Because, you know, if we get to reinterpret this myth indefinitely, my Medusa, she's mad. She is a mad woman, but she is like quiet, cold mad. I love that for her. Yeah. I also imagine her as a hottie. Whatever that is for whoever's listening, just a hottie with awesome snakes for hair.
0: I I mean, I very much imagine her like this statue. Just this cold, quiet anger. And I love the way they depicted the hair because from very far away, it looks like beautiful, interesting curls and then you get closer and it's the snakes. I think it's a really cool way to have done it.
1: Yeah. I'm very glad that this story consistently resurges. It allows a lot of people to find themselves. And I'm sure that... if we could have, again, 10 different guests on this podcast, they would all have different things to say. But listen, Medusa for me is one of the definitive, one of the definitive myths. And I was so stressed covering this. (laughs) But that's that. Yes, you did that. You did that. You covered it. You did it beautifully. We did not
0: intend for this to be Rowan only talking about Medusa. Um, I'm glad it turned out that way. So in a a future episode, you'll hear the story I had planned for this week. But man, I could talk with you for another four hours about Medusa and women and society. So we have to cut it off somewhere.
1: Right. This happened because Tracy also has a lot of knowledge and a lot of things to say about Medusa. The reason that I am covering it is because Tracy is filled with grace (laughs) we (laughs) both love this woman so we should have known we should have
0: known i contemplated it for like a minute and then went about doing my own research and it forgot like it was just like oh yeah okay and then as soon as we started recording i was like oh oh i have way too many thoughts oh i'm so excited oh (laughs) absolutely not this is definitely gonna go really i'm
1: so glad that your opinion is different than mine about it i'm like again different we really aren't our opinions aren't that different but <laughs> i do like that we don't i do like that we both have different sort of in our head definitive versions mm-hmm. of the story because that it helps it helps <laughs> when
0: well, it's just more interesting and it's fun to to go back and forth it, I always think it's fun to pick things apart with someone when you feel safe doing so. You know, we're not fighting each other about our stories. We're not defensive about it. It's just cool to hear the different people's perspectives.
1: My mother reminded me when I was telling her that I was covering this story that in my youth, but also as an adult, people have compared me to Medusa because I have nuts curly hair, um, which is such a compliment. So I was thinking about that this week. When I was covering the story and how I see one of the things that I like most about myself and one of the things that's supposed to be ugliest about Medusa and also is most powerful about Medusa and how that Mm -hmm. brings me such comfort in the way stories can. So I hope that other people who hear about Medusa can find whatever that is for them because she truly is. Mm, my, she, she is my Meryl Streep. <laughs> yes, I love that. I've,
0: I've always, you've always loved Medusa. I'm so glad you were able to cover her. You did such a good job. i I'd seen those statues before, but I never dug into them. And I'm so glad you covered that too. Oh, this was so good. I'm so glad we decided to just fully focus on Medusa and give her the time in the spotlight on our show that she deserves.
1: And I don't know that we say this enough, but for anyone who's interested, those pictures that we referenced will be on our Instagram so that when you listen to this episode, you can look at what we were looking at as well. Yes. Trace, do you want to hear nice feedback about our podcast? Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. I have pulled a five star review for us because I read it and it made me giggle. It is from. Germany.
0: Oh, my God. We have have at least one listener in Germany.
1: I know. Okay. (laughs) Laura Erica Elizabeth says, I simply love Willing and Fable. This podcast is the perfect mixture of facts and fiction. The two amazing hosts manage to create a mysterious, emotional, and humorous atmosphere that sucks me in every time. Rowan and Tracy add their own spin on each topic – with incredibly creative and beautifully told stories of their own making as a proud hag from Germany I particularly enjoy all the episodes about female mythical figures if you enjoy diving deep into myths and legends and want to experience them in a completely unique way this podcast is for you
0: oh my god there's so much to unpack there one what you didn't what you can't say is that it ends with a black heart which is the best emoji
1: they said that they were a proud hag. A proud that makes me hag. so happy. That makes me so
0: <laughs> happy. Oh, that's so nice. Oh my god. I'm going to I'm not I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry.
1: Thank you, Laura, Erica, Elizabeth. I am so grateful you used the term proud hag because proud hag is the best. So <laughs> if anyone ever writes in and says nice things about us, please know that we read them and we have a lot of feelings about it and it does truly make a difference and it means quite a lot to us. So write in if you feel so inclined. We'd be grateful. Tracy. Yes. Tell me something good. All right. My something good this week is pretty simple. I was
0: finally able to celebrate my nephew's second birthday. We had to celebrate his first Lee birthday. He's small. He's so small. He He's two going on 25, I swear. He's like so wicked smart and mobile and lovely and giddy and happy. And we had to watch his first birthday virtually because it's in April. So April of last mm-hmm. year, you know, he did his cake smashing. My sister had to record the whole thing on video. And this year, you know, we're all at least – at this point, now we're all pretty much uh, half vaccinated or fully vaccinated, so we were able to have an outdoor celebration in her backyard. Mm. And it was just so cute and so lovely and so wonderful. And the other good thing is just vaccines; they're big. they're they're finally being shared. Everyone, go get your vaccine. I have no room for people in my life who aren't interested in vaccines. Vaccines are important and wonderful and amazing, and everyone should get them.
1: Here's the problem with quarantine. I, as an introvert, realize that I am happy to operate dealing with less people. So anyone who is anti-vax, they're getting cut out because I don't Mm -hmm. need people.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Those are the
1: rules now.
0: (laughs) All right, Rowan. Yeah. Tell me something good.
1: (sighs) Listen, I had a week. I really did. I had Mm -hmm. quite a week. And part of it was exacerbated by the fact that I was very stressed about Medusa and have a lot of feelings about it. And she is just the ultimate feminist icon to me. And so I was really living in the thick of it. Yeah. Um. It It's like that sometimes. Um, and my something good is so simple. It's... <laughs> I was in my living room taking a break from frantically typing and grabbing some tea and it was kind of late afternoon and i realized i should open the curtains cuz sunlight is important and mm-hmm, vitamin d yeah. is necessary and i just pulled the curtains open and i was getting the most beautiful light coming into my apartment it was just golden and you know shining on the the dust motes that co in the air when you mm-hmm. move curtains and the fabric and open the windows oh, it sounds and like you're
0: describing a scene from a studio ghibli movie
1: exactly yeah it was silly and and not a particularly noteworthy thing but it i just took a lot of time to stand there and enjoy that and i don't often enjoy the appearance of los angeles so it was it was such a gift and it lowered my stress in a way that I often forget just existing can (laughs) yeah 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 I always feel like I have to do something about it there has to be an activity
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I have to do an activity about stress I relate to that
1: so that that's my something good and I am sure that sounds corny but it is like that sometimes
0: sometimes you have to romanticize the little moments in your life I do it with my coffee all the time
1: Ugh, your coffee game is mm, chef's kiss.
0: I love it. I love. I I now own way too many machines to make coffee with. I think I'm up to like five different. What
1: do What do you do with them? Make coffee. I don't keep in keep in mind. I don't drink coffee, but like, what what would require five different machines? Is it like a latte? So there's the
0: classic. Yeah, I've I've got a. Uh, espresso machine, so I can mm-hmm. make espresso and steamed milk. I've got a Keurig. Um, I have a drip coffee pot, so just the regular standard coffee pot. I have a pour over maker. Um, I have a cold brew maker. I have a French press.
1: Oh, so it's for different coffee vibes. Yeah. I see, it's not for one coffee that requires five different machine steps. No,
0: no, 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 it's just for whatever type of coffee I'm Do I want? Do I want it in the pour over or do I want the French press or am I really lazy and just want to pop my reusable K-cup thing into my Keurig? Whatever I'm feeling. I want to make a full-on latte.
1: I feel like I'd actually really enjoy an espresso latte thing that you made. I don't really like coffee, but I feel like I would.
0: I'd make it so good. If you want it to be really sweet, I could do that. If you want it to just be... I don't know. I also love playing with milk. So I like doing both cold and hot milk mixtures with different flavorings. And then you can control how sweet things are by how much of the milk you put in. It's just my little ritual. I love it. I guess my other something good is coffee.
1: The coffee that converted me to being even in any way interested in coffee was Armenian coffee. While I was traveling in Armenia, I got sweet coffee very often. And the process of making that coffee involves sugar going in right from the beginning mm-hmm. and i like a sweet coffee don't at me um and it was just such a rich earthy sweet yummy beverage that reminded me nothing of american bitter coffee that mm-hmm. i have never mm-hmm. liked so i am now available for coffee conversion <laughs> okay i love that <laughs> i love were. that for you <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we did the thing We did it We
0: did the thing I am so happy we were able to cover that You did such an amazing job I'm so glad we gave her the attention she deserved I hope you all enjoyed it too And remember, stories grow with the telling So
1: if you like what we do, tell a friend Or tell a foe And we'll see you soon, Okay? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ashe, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.